0: Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.breanshoreline.org. We just sang a few minutes ago that the Lord, uh, we sang to Him that He knows the depths of our hearts, and He loves us the same. Let's have a word of prayer and just have a quiet moment of prayer and let's just give God thanks for how much He loves us and that indeed that truth of the grace of God that He has given to us is something that we can firmly hold on to today. Our Heavenly Father, we do come to you as a thankful people and we are thankful that we can come to worship you through music, through fellowship. We're just sharing our lives with you through the giving of our gifts. And Father, now we continue to worship by opening your Holy Word and understanding it as you, the Holy Spirit, uh, allows us to. And apply it to our lives that we may come to know you better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So today we have begun a new series, which we've been doing the last several uh, fall uh, periods of time, where in Sunday school, which uh, we still have at Briam Bible Church, and uh, we put a lot of energy and effort into it and invite you to be a part of that for all ages. And uh, our children through adult classes, we are studying together the book of John uh, this coming fall. And so on Sunday mornings, to connect with that, we are going to be looking together at the Gospel of John, as well and we are going to focus on the I am statements of our Lord Jesus Christ and in so doing come to know him better who is Jesus Christ who is our Lord Jesus Christ are you continuing to get to know him better he is the focus of why we gather today he is our savior the father the son the holy spirit we are called by his names we are Christ ones we are Christians And so we want to get to know Him better. The Apostle Paul says, oh, that I may know Him, know Him more and more, and the fellowship of His suffering, and to serve Him, and to love Him, and to walk with Him. Do we know Him? And so in this study of the Gospel of John, our our desire is that we would get to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and also make application to our lives of the things that we learn. The I am statements of the Lord. So we're going to we're going to move ahead, actually, in the in the book today. Uh, the author, the Apostle John, we think he was writing this toward the end of his life. You, you may have known your Bible. Mine says 85 to 90 A.D., which are decades past the time of our Lord Jesus Christ's death, past the time of all the other apostles' death. Uh, we believe John lived to be the longest of all the apostles. And, of course, left us also the book of Revelation, the epistles for a second and 3rd John. And as uh, he reflects, I often think how John reflects back at this old age, looking back over his life and those years he spent with the Lord Jesus Christ and then applying that to see what God has done in the ministry of the gospel, going to the Gentile world and how how, how it's gone all over the world by the time uh, John comes to the end of his life. I wonder what thoughts go through his mind as he as he pens this epistle, this letter, this gospel, that was given to him by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to go to chapter 8 this morning to begin. We'll be working backwards through this, because we come to the very pivotal statement of the I Am Statements, the one that's foundational, that uh, we can build all the other ones around. And it's in in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. The context is the story of the uh, woman caught in adultery, it takes place on the temple grounds, it tells us, where they brought the woman to him and said she was caught in the very act of adultery. Moses said, we should stone her. What do you say? And if you don't remember the stories, Jesus got down and started to write in the dust of the earth. We don't know what he wrote. We all kind of wonder about that, right? Wonder He wrote something. I don't think he was just doodling, you know. He wrote something. There are different ideas on what he wrote. But whatever it was, um, then he got up and said, you without sin, you, you throw the first stone. And of course, the silence was deafening as the stones began to drop, right? Uh, beginning with the elders first, and they left, and Jesus says, where are they who condemned you? And she said, they're gone. He said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And it's, this then transitions in this same account. It's in the same, t- it's in the same context that it transitions still into the, uh, temple mount area. Um, after this, and because um, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said. And so we're we're in this context of the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem. And we come to the end of chapter 8, and we read this in verse 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. So it makes sense that we begin the I am statements of our Lord Jesus Christ with this statement, right? I am. It doesn't add anything to it. I am. And the response that it garnered in verse 59, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. Remember, this whole scene started with wanting to stone this woman caught in adultery. Now, maybe the stones are still there on the ground. I don't know. Um, because it's in the same context. And at the end of this, when he says, I am, the response is, those listening, they pick up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So I want us to consider this morning, first of all, how do we get to this point? First of all, what, what did he mean when he said, I am, before Abraham was, I am. And with understanding that, how did that get to the point in this conversation where the result was they wanted to stone him, just as they wanted to stone the woman caught in adultery? It's a conversation that sort of goes from bad to worse as it goes on to reach this point. And I want to make an application for us, if we might, from this passage as well. I am, before Abraham was, I The fact that they picked up stones to stone him indicate that when he said this, they felt it was worthy of death. In the Old Testament, blasphemy, to equate yourself with God, is clearly worthy of death. Some, Some think that's not really what he was saying here, but they certainly understood, didn't they? There's no question with them, they understood exactly what he was saying, and he deserved to die for saying this. I'd like you to go back for a moment in the Old Testament. You may be familiar with this account. But Exodus chapter 3, Genesis, Exodus, the five books of Moses. And the context here, of course, is God calling Moses to go back to the children of Israel. Moses is an 80-year-old man. He's been gone for 40 years. He has no intention of going back to Egypt. And he certainly has no intention of going back and leading the people out to freedom. And he argues with God as to why he shouldn't do this, why he can't do this, why he's a bad choice, he's not going to do this. And in the, in the context of this conversation, Moses asked God the question. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose, let's just pretend for a minute I go, okay? Suppose I go to the Israelites, and I say to them, quote, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? What, was, what, would I, what would I say to them? God, what would I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I, and it shortens it, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go. And of course, then Moses goes on. Well, okay, but what if they don't believe me? Right. <laughs> so that's, that's another story. Moses does go because God makes him go. I M. This past summer, when we were in a series of sermons that Gary gave. We talked about this, that this this is the personal name of God. You you have a name. How do you like it when people call you, hey, you, right? Hey, you, or, you know, my best friend, what's his name? or <laughs> What's her name? You know, um, hey, you, we have a name. Our names are important to us. And as we dedicate children to the Lord up here, and we focus on the meaning of their names, uh, we we give names as as parents that are meaningful that we that we've chosen are not just random they may be family names they may be for a special reason in our life story in our journey names are important and and God gives them a personal name um, other gods had names and uh, in the Old Testament in Genesis and so forth we read about Elohim we read the the, the, the title for God Elohim. But we also see this name already before it's revealed what it means here. I am, and it's simply four Hebrew consonants. Y, H, W, H. If you were to transliterate it in English. But without the vowels, because they didn't write the vowels. And the Jews quit saying the name of God out of respect for it. So we really aren't exactly sure how it was pronounced. I mean, you could put different vowels in Y, H, W, H. And so you often hear that Yahweh is maybe the best understanding of what that name was, Yahweh. But what it means is, I am. What does that mean? What is that? What kind of what what name is that? I am. I exist. How personal is that? And so as, as, as we try to understand this, many of the Hebrew commentators, too, have suggested that the focus of this is, I am with you is who I am. I am with you. Because he goes on to say, remember, I am the God who was with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with the patriarchs. They knew these stories. They knew the history that they had. And they they had heard these wonderful stories. They are slaves in Egypt. They are slaves in Egypt. And during this time, Moses has to go back to them and bring them this good news that the, the God of all these wonderful stories, you remember, who protected Who enriched, who enlarged their families, who was faithful to them, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your story, the God of your family, the God of your history. That's who I am, and I am with you as well. And this becomes the very personal name of God that was given to Israel Yahweh. Yahweh, I am. And when you're in the, if I was in the synagogue today reading this, this scripture from When I would get to this name, I would never pronounce it. I would say Hashem, the name, or I might say Adonai, the master, but I would never pronounce this name, Yahweh, uh, when reading because of respect for his name. But it was a personal name. It was given to them. And so Jesus says to the, to the leaders in Jerusalem at the end of John chapter 8 that we're looking at this morning, he says to them, before Abraham was, and what he says in the Aramaic language, would be exactly translated in the most clear and firm affirmation from his perspective of who he is before Abraham was born Yahweh, I am. And they picked up stones to kill him. How did he get to this point that when this beautiful name, And this confirmation that I am with you, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, and your story, and your history, I am your God. How did it get to the point where that would incite to kill him? Well, let's back up a little bit and see how this conversation goes, as I say, um, from from bad to worse. I've given you the the context, and we're going to see in this context uh, several... um, references by John to the Jews. And of course, I want to make a statement here. I've made this before and and I know you, I understand, I'm sure you understand this. Because certainly throughout history, we know this throughout history, those who have misused the scriptures have misused that to persecute Jews. This is not all the Jewish people. John was a Jew. Jesus, of course, was a Jew. All the apostles All the the authors of the Bible, except for Luke, were Jews. In the context of the Gospels, there are Jews who refer to the Jews. And so this is clearly a reference to the leadership on the Temple Mounts, many who are part of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and scribes and priests who are part of this leadership. The context has to help you understand this. When he responds to the Jews, he's talking to the leaders Of Israel, so we go back to verse 30. I want us to start here in verse 30 of this chapter, of chapter 8, and I want you to notice this. We're, we're, you know, we're skipping over a lot of conversation that you'll take time to read. We'll actually be coming back to some of this in one of our other lessons here. But it says in verse 30, even as he spoke, as Jesus spoke on the temple grounds, many put their faith in him, or believed. Many believed. That's what it says. As he spoke, many of them believed. Jesus replied, and Jesus, and to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, so many believed. To those, he specifically points out and says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Oh, you maybe have heard that statement, right? That's sort of a famous gospel statement. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. This is written to those who are believing what he's saying. And then you'll notice the next phrase, they answered him. The most natural reading of this is the same people. Now some will say, no, this switches now, and now we're talking about a different group because of the hostility. The most natural reading is he's talking to the the leaders of Israel. He's talking to scribes and priests and Pharisees, members of the Sanhedrin. And several of them are believing what he is saying. And then he says to them, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they react to this and they react negatively. They answered him, wait a minute. We are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free. This is, friends, this is where the conversation begins to go from bad to worse. W- wait a minute. Wait Wait a second. These are people believing in him. Now, what does that mean, they believe in him? Have they put their full faith and trust in him? Probably not. I mean, they don't, they don't even know the whole story of the crucifixion and resurrection, but they are, they are believing what he is saying. And yet, when, he's, when he says to them, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free, they react. And the reaction is simply, we don't need to be set free. We are Abraham's descendants. We are the promised ones. We belong to the lineage of Abraham. We have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? This is kind of interesting. This is the group of people who know their history. They know they've been servants to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, to to the Greek empire. They are subservient to the Romans right now. But, but we are we are children of Abraham. We have never been slaves. How can how do you dare say that? Jesus says, "I tell you the truth. Everyone sin who sins is a slave to sin. This is getting worse, right? This is the leadership of Israel, and he says to them, Yes, if you have sinned, you are a slave, and a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you are ready to kill me, because you have no room for my word. They, he already knows they are looking for any way to, to to get rid of him. Why? Why are they trying to kill him? We haven't got to the blasphemous account yet, but the, the, his challenge to who they are and what they are doing. This is this is the this is the temple. This is this is Mount Zion. This is the leadership. This is all the liturgy and everything that goes with it, that we know so much about, and the, and the piety that goes with it. And yet they were trying to kill him. And Jesus said, I know you're trying to kill me. You're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your Father. Verse 39, Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We've got a couple of key words here that are going to come to us again throughout our study of the gospel of John. First of all, belief. First of all, belief. I think these are the same people who were putting their trust in him and all of a sudden it is shifting when he challenged them and challenges their, their, their lineage to Abraham as the, as the foundation of their position before God. And he challenges that. What does belief mean? If anyone believe on Christ, he is a new creature. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Ken mentioned last week, and you will be saved. They are believing. What are they believing because they begin to question. We see another key word here, and that is slaves and slaves to sin, which is going to be developed much more in the, in the book of Romans. And Jesus says, you, you, yes, you are slaves, because if you sin, you're a slave to sin. You're not free. I'm coming to tell you the truth, and this truth will set you free if you will listen to it. And truth is another key word in this passage, this word of truth. What is truth, Pilate says to Jesus? Christ came to say, I'm, I'm coming to tell you the truth. Verse forty two Jesus said to you to them, Here's the truth. If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God. And we're going to read this. Now now and and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he that is God the Father has sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Now um, This is not the way to win friends and influence people. (laughs) You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Wow. I mean, these are the words of Jesus. And this is to people who were beginning to show belief in him, and he challenges it right away. He challenges what, what do they really believe? Where are they putting their hope? Where are they putting their trust and faith? And we see this connection with Abraham. And this becomes so important that their lineage, their history, their connection to the patriarchs, this is what matters. Even though in their hearts, they have already talked about killing an innocent man. Completely opposed to anything the law teaches. And and Jesus challenges them. And he says to these leaders, he says, you belong to your father, the devil. Well, you know, this is not going to get any better. You belong to your father, the devil, because he is a liar. And this is what he, do, he does. And he's done this from the beginning. He goes, and, he, and he goes on to expand on this. And yet, verse 45, we come back to the truth. I tell you the truth. You do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear God, you do not belong to God. This is to the religious establishment on Mount Zion, on the temple grounds. You do not belong to God. In verse 48, the Jews, the context, it's these leaders, They say to him, aren't we right in saying you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? To the Son of God, God himself, you are a Samaritan. I mean, that was like the lowest of the low. That was worse than a Gentile. You know that from the Gospels, right? The Samaritan woman, the story of the the, the man who was beaten on the road, who was tended to by us, and he was a Samaritan. And this huge racial division between the Jews and the Samaritan. You're a Samaritan. We knew it. We knew it. And you're demon-possessed. That's who you are. I mean, look at this conversation, where it is going. And Jesus says, I'm not possessed by a demon. I often wonder, you know, when I read this, my mind, just because of how I probably would respond, this sounds like a really heated argument, doesn't it? Right? I don't know how Jesus is saying this. Is he just calmly, you're demon-possessed. Is he yelling at him? Is this a really heightened, you know, uh, lit-up argument? I don't know. We're not given the body language. and and All we're told is what he he just tells him straight forward. I'm I'm not demon-possessed. I honor my father. You dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it. And here's another key word that's going to continue to show up in John. Glory the is of the only begotten of the father full of gross, uh, full of light and truth and and, and this idea that that, he, that the glory of the holy spirit is baptismal the glory of god that appears on the mount of transfiguration the glory of god when he when he is transfigured this word glory he, he says here he says i am i am the i am the I am, i'm here to represent the glory of god I tell you the truth, verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You are slaves. You are the father of the devil. If you keep my word, you will not see death. You will die. And the Jews and the the leaders taught because of the patriarchs, they are entitled to eternal life, to life through the patriarchs and, and through the merits of the patriarchs. So when he says this, you you will never see death, the Jews exclaim, now we know you are demon-possessed. We know you're demon-possessed. I mean, think of that. They are are calling the Lord Jesus Christ demon-possessed. It's interesting, later on the Lord says, anything will be forgiven but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They are calling him demon-possessed. And yet these same people are still offered the truth, the gospel, and an opportunity, and we'll see that. They say, you're demon-possessed. Abraham died. So do the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Do you see this coming back to Abraham? It's their lineage to Abraham that matters. He died. And so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me through Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said not, I would be a liar like you. I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. It's very interesting. In Judaism, in the first century, already there was this teaching that God had revealed to Abraham way back in the Old Testament the whole story of the coming Messiah. In one of the uh, um, Talmud teachings on the Sanhedrin, we, we see this, that the Abraham was given insight into the coming Messianic era. His rejoicing at the Son was evidence of this. It says in Sanhedrin, God showed Abraham every generation and every teacher to come. And there was this belief that Abraham in his day, was given the privilege of knowing the whole story of the coming teachers and prophets, including the Messiah. They believed that. And you can find that in their writings. And Jesus said, Abraham, whether that was true or not, Abraham rejoiced to see my day because God had promised him that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Abraham is rejoicing. and, And Jesus says, it's here. I am the fulfillment of that. Abraham looked forward to this. He rejoiced at this. He's rejoicing that I am here. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. How have you seen Abraham? What are you talking about? Before Abraham was, I am. And this whole account reaches this culmination, reaches this climax where he says, I am, I am Yahweh, I I am And they've had enough. And they pick up the stones. He is worthy of death. And somehow, miraculously, it has to be, he managed to hide himself and slip out and to leave. And we go on to the next story of the man born blind. A conversation directed by the Lord to cut to the truth that needed stating. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, He he is not hating these men. He is, he, he is, he is challenging them. He is challenging them to think, what do you believe? What is the truth? What are you trusting in? Is that enough because you are simply descendants of Abraham? Is that what matters to God? Is that all it is? Is that true belief? What were the Lord's motives? What about their beliefs? What about these people who stood there and listened to that? Did any of them ever come to faith? Did this this engagement, this conversation, did it ever have any good with these people out of it? Well, listen, we know this. We know for sure that two of the Pharisees, members of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, put their faith in Christ and they really believed in him. They believed in him so much they were the only two who dared to, to step forward on the night he was crucified, to take his body and give it a proper cleansing and prepare it so they could come back and to put it in a tomb so they could come back and give it a right burial. Nobody else would. Were they there? Probably. Nicodemus comes to him by night and questioned him. We don't know how Joseph of Arimathea came, but he believed. And you know what? In the book of Acts, during the time of the, the Peter's ministry to the house of Israel, that he clearly states We see this in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, quote, A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The Lord Jesus Christ is challenging. What do you believe? Who am I? Who are you? What is it? And he challenges them. And the result is, Many of them want to stone him, and we know it continues to fester till they do have him killed. But there are those who came to faith, many who were there in that audience, who did come to faith. They were challenged, they did examine, they did open up, the Holy Spirit moved in their hearts, and they did change their mind because He challenged them. What can we learn from this? What can we learn from this? As we, this is our preparation, our foundation, as we're going to look now at the I am statements of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am specifically a, a certain aspect that you can relate to. But they're all founded on this. First of all, this is, this is absolutely essential to our Christian faith that Jesus Christ is fully God. Fully God and fully man. This is essential to our Christian faith. Only a human could take my place, and only God could satisfy the holiness of the sacrifice that is needed. He is fully God, and He is fully man. And friends, when you least expect it, and the message we bring today in this in this church, the body of Christ, when people are offered Jew or Gentile, comes simply through faith in Christ, when you least expect it, somebody's going to respond to that message. Who would have ever expected Joseph of Arimathea to respond and come to faith? Who would have expected Nicodemus who came at night and left by night would come to faith? Who would expect a whole bunch of priests in the book of Acts would put their faith in the Lord's Jesus Christ? People will respond even when it's challenging. And you know, the challenge here was, lineage and tradition are no guarantee of genuine faith. How often do we say, are you Christian? Well, of course, my grandfather was a pastor. Well, yes, I, I grew up in the church. I was married in the church. Of course, I'm a Christian. Listen, friends, it, lineage and tradition are no guarantee of genuine faith. You know, There's an interesting story that one of the commentators referred to a, a famous theologian, the story of the signpost. They said there was a signpost that was pointing to the future. It was pointing how to get to that future for these people. And they came to the signpost and they stopped at the signpost and they tarried there. And the signpost was the message of how to get to the future, where, where you were heading, what your goal is. And they stopped at the signpost. And pretty soon they camped out there. And pretty soon they began to flourish there. And pretty soon they began to focus on the signpost and what the tangible, what it meant to them tangibly. And pretty soon they had traditions. And pretty soon they had liturgies and creeds and everything else all gathered around the signpost that was pointing to the future. A few of them went and came back and said, yes, that's where it is. But they stayed there and that became their focus, the signpoint that was pointing toward where they were supposed to be going. And he attributes this, actually in a commentary in the book of Romans, he attributes this to this situation here in Jerusalem. You see, this this is the time when Israel is no longer worshiping idols. The scourge of the Old Testament, idol worship, is nowhere to be found. Open the Gospels. You go from the Old Testament and you come to the New Testament and idol worship is not an issue anywhere in the Gospels for the Jews. They are not worshiping idols like they did in the Old Testament. They are devoted to God. They have gathered around. They, they have a, a, a very deep system of, 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 of traditions and beliefs and focused on the Mosaic law and obeying the Mosaic law and focused on where they came from and the ancestors. And this focus on the Mosaic law and the ancestors has become so important that it's become the signpost they're camped under and to forget what the signpost was pointing toward. It was pointing toward the future, the Messiah, and he's here. And the Lord has to challenge what's happened at the signpost to get them to understand this is where you are going. And I wonder if that is not an ongoing thought we should, we should continue to think about. Is it possible that even we as Christians sometimes can forget where we're going and gather around the signposts? Do we sometimes begin to think it's our lineage and who we are and our tradition and where we've come from and the things we do that we do so well? And I don't know about you, but it is sometimes a little bit of an uncomfortable question if Jesus were to come today and if he did challenge some of my traditions, some of my security, some of the things that I'm quite certain are the only way it should be done. And if he did challenge those, and if he did ask some serious questions, would I get defensive? Would I defend the signpost and what's happened under the signpost? Is it possible possible that if I could react the same way? Friends, I think that as we get to know the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Gospels. As we get to know our Lord Jesus Christ through the epistles, as applied to us as members of the body of Christ, His church today, of Jew and Gentile, all people, all races worldwide, it's okay sometimes to be a little uncomfortable and to be prodded to remember what the focus is, what our focus is. It's not the signpost. It's what it points to it's what God wants us to be and where we are going and the fact that we have the privilege and opportunity of representing where we are going now here while we are here to share God's message of grace and mercy and to share in his presence in us today. How would we respond? I hope our hearts are always open as God nudges us through his word through one another to sharpen that focus, that we do not become too proud of who we are and where we've come from and forget why we've been called and where we are going and how that should impact and shape and focus every single aspect of our lives. That is so uncomfortable. Amazing love. You know the depths of our heart and you love us the same. We pray that God would shape us and use us and our hearts would be open and challenge us, make us uncomfortable and that we would keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. I am who I am. And I am with you. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I am the God of history. And I am with you is who I am. And that should impact every single aspect of my life as a believer, and as yours, and as a church, and as part of the church, the body of Christ. I am, before Abraham was, I am. Let's close our service with our final song this morning. These songs are focused on Scripture and biblical thoughts to draw us to Him and to worship. And it's a privilege to sing along and lift our voices to the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand with us one last time? Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege of gathering today. And Lord, we are reminded of your love for us. Even in this, we looked at this morning, your love for these leaders of Israel. To the point that many did come to believe. Uh, Even the two, as we mentioned this morning, came to, to him when no one else would. And Lord, we thank you. And we thank you, Father, as we leave this place today, that we would just be reminded that as much as as our traditions, our liturgies, our way we do things, and our likes and dislikes are to us, that we would be always open and willing to your word, penetrating our hearts and our souls, your two-edged sword, whatever it takes to draw us continually into your presence and to see your face and to seek your will, and to live lives that are fully devoted to you and evidence the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray if there's a person here today who's never received your love and received your forgiveness for sins, that they would do so today by acknowledging their need for salvation and that Jesus Christ died in the cross and paid for them and offers eternal life and hope and joy. And we pray to that end that you would work in hearts today. Dismiss us now with your blessing, your peace, And the courage you give us as we walk with you this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.